this morning on the heels of that incredible, miraculous story, we're going to be presented with a little bit of dilemma. Now, I want to just pause for a moment before we get any further into this lesson, and I want to just kind of do my best to remove our interpretation filter of hindsight. So in hindsight, we can read about the story of Saul of Tarsus, and we can see that he was the great persecutor of the church. He was the motivating factor behind the lynching of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. And then that just fueled his evil passion, and we pick up in the next chapter, and he's breathing out threats and slaughters against the church, actually in the ninth chapter, not the eighth chapter. And we see that Saul is just out to destroy as much of the church as he possibly can. And then he is radically transformed. He's radically converted. And in hindsight, we can typically just kind of celebrate the conversion and say, look how incredibly powerful God is to transform the life of such an evil man and utilize him in, the, in an influential way in the building of God's kingdom. But we miss a very important factor that was an issue, it was a dilemma for the early church to deal with upon the conversion of Saul. And it was the dilemma of fear. You see, had, had, had we been alive during this time in the first century and there was an individual who was out to destroy our very lives and a true existential threat to us because of our faith, such as the Apostle Paul, or we know him as in hindsight, Saul of Tarsus, such as Saul of Tarsus, then we would have not exactly given him the warmest of all welcomes when he shows up at our Sunday morning gathering because we know what he had been up to in his past. This was a great dilemma for the church because this was truly the first time that anybody would have questioned the conversion of another individual. I'm sure that in the minds of those believers, they thought, is this another one of Saul of Tarsus's sly tricks? Is he attempting to get a foot in the door of our fellowship so he can identify us and so he can know who we are and so that perhaps some way he can further execute his evil plan? You see, there was a great amount of fear that just saturated the minds of those believers. And we see this, and I kind of didn't have time to uh, uh, dig into this last week, but we see this in about the 27th, 26th verse of Acts chapter 9, where the believers were filled with fear because of this event and this uh, proclamation that Saul of Tarsus has now become one of them. I love this story because it is on the heels of the conversion of Saul that Barnabas, one of my favorite characters in the entirety of the book of Acts is reintroduced to the stage. He's reintroduced to the platform and the spotlight shines on Barnabas for just a moment. The scripture said Barnabas was nicknamed the son of encouragement. We're going to encounter him in a moment in Acts chapter 9 verse 27 if you want to go ahead and follow me there. But we've already encountered Barnabas once before. If you remember back to Acts chapter 4, shortly after that first New Testament Pentecost, when all those people got saved and the church just continued to flourish. Remember how I taught you that during that time it was, consider, it was what was considered a pilgrimage feast, both Passover and Pentecost, which were 50 days apart from one another. And so all of these Jews would have converged upon Jerusalem when these great events took place after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension 
of our Lord Jesus. And they saw all these incredible things happen, such as what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost there in the upper room. And they would have been a part of all of these incredible events, such as how Acts chapter 2 ended, that the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. And they would hang around in Jerusalem because what God was doing there through the, the life of His Son, Jesus, what God was doing there was too great to leave and to go back to normal life. My prayer above all is we are studying through the book of Acts in, and we're kind of right in the middle of it right now. My prayer above all is that we experience Jesus in the same life. That we experience that what God desires to do in this world, in spite of everything that is wrong, in spite of everything that is broken, in spite of everything that, fears, uh, that, that, that fuels fear and anxiety and depression in our lives, I pray that we encounter God in a manner that causes us to say, I cannot go back to life as I knew it before this experience. You remember, they're all hanging around Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden, you know, they put all their money together, and they're trying to, find, to, uh, uh, trying to fund the kingdom work that's happening. And then one day, the secretary comes along and said, Guys, we're running out of money. It was Barnabas we're first introduced to in chapter 4 and verse 37 of the book of Acts who stands up and says, you know what, I'll take care of this. So he calls up his real estate broker and he had some land somewhere that he didn't really need and he says, I want to liquidate this property and so he does so and he gives all the money to the apostles to fund the kingdom work and this began to be contagious and others begin to do that and we saw there Barnabas standing up out of the shadows and taking a pivotal role. We'll see the same occur this morning in Acts chapter 9 at verse 27. As the apostles are full of fear, the followers of Jesus are full of fear. What do you mean Saul of Tarsus is now one of us and he's now been converted? They refuse to welcome him in to their fellowship, not out of arrogance and not because they did not believe he was worthy of the grace of God, but out of fear for their very own safety and well-being. But watch how Barnabas meets this fear in chapter 9, verse 27 of the book of Acts. But Barnabas took hold of Saul, and he brought him to the apostles. And he described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road, and that he had talked to him, and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. So Barnabas would stand up and take Saul under his wing, and he would move the church from this place of fear to a place of a welcome reception of the miraculous transformation of Saul of Tarsus. And I want to stop and notice something here this morning because that scripture in our English language alone with the naked eye is powerful enough. But when we stop for a moment and look at it in an exegetical manner, we see something even more incredible taking place. In chapter 9, verse 27, the scripture says, Barnabas took hold of him. That cluster of words, took hold of him in our English language, is one word in the original Greek language in which Luke writes this document. And it is the word epilambano. And epilambano is a... Um, is a legal term, if you will. It would be the word you would use to describe someone being arrested. It means to be seized with a purpose. 
Remember when Jesus was crucified on Calvary and they were taking him through the streets of Jerusalem outside of the city limits where Calvary was and, and they, they call this man Simon to carry Jesus' cross. Remember that story? The same word epilambano is used there in Luke's account of that story. When they seized Simon the Cyrenian to carry the cross of Jesus. It's used again later in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas were arrested at Philippi and that, that, that word is used and we translate it arrested, epilambano, to be seized with a purpose. So we can, be, we can build a picture in our minds of this man named Barnabas and he's standing there and he sees this radical transformation in the life of Saul of Tarsus but yet he sees his brothers and sisters so saturated with fear that they cannot receive this miraculous transformation. So he puts himself on the line once again. And he epilambano, he seizes Saul for a purpose. He says, I'm going to prove, I'm going to show them that this is truly the work of God. We pick up in Acts chapter 9 at verse 28. And they widely receive the message of Saul and the encouragement of Barnabas. And then Paul or Saul was with them. Moving about freely in Jerusalem, meaning the people no longer feared him. And he had spoken out boldly there in the name of the Lord. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews in verse 29. But they were attempting to put him to death. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus. And so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the church continued to increase. Now this is an incredible story. We see not only the transformation of Saul of Tarsus, but now the inclusion of Saul of Tarsus into the church. We, uh, I'm not going to get into the transformation of Saul's name to Paul. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks, but I'm not going to detail that and what that really means today. But I do want you to understand, if I've not really driven this point home enough just yet, that the inclusion of Saul, the welcome reception of the church to Saul is probably just as much a miracle as Saul's transformation himself. So God has taken the great enemy of the church and he has transformed him, he has radically converted him, and he has absolutely, uh, absolutely brought about a total 180 in his life. And then he has given the church, the body of Christ, the faith to receive this one who was prior to this moment a pure ecclesiastical foe, a hater of the church and its work. But if you're following our study guide and you're following what we're teaching on Sunday mornings, you know that today's lesson is going to cover all the way to chapter 11, verse 30 of the book of Acts, which is a great amount of real estate, and I'm going to do my best to consolidate it in a short amount of time this morning. And you may say, if you've read and if you've studied the study guide this week, you may say, Pastor, I don't understand how in the world all these stories fit together on the heels of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. We're going to see this morning that the personal experience that began with Saul on the road to Damascus would now lead to a global encounter of the same God that Saul met. That Saul's conversion was not the end of God's plan, but it was rather the beginning. It was the glimpse of the light of the end, at the end of the tunnel where God was taking those who were following him. And I want to say this morning that when we experience conversion in our lives, 
When we experience Jesus in our lives, many times we just write it off and we just think, well, now I'm saved and now I I have uh, faith over fear. Now I have peace of God in my mind and I can just kind of coast my way through life and go to church on Sunday. But let me say to you this morning that salvation, conversion is not the end of God's plan for our lives. It is merely the beginning. And in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, God is saying to the church, it is not over yet watch what i'm going to do we continue to travel through the rest of the ninth chapter and through the tenth chapter and the spotlight begins to transition we're going to cover a lot of time frame actually there's probably more years covered from chapter 9 verse 27 to chapter 11 verse 30 than we've covered in the entirety of the book of acts so far so in his writing luke is pushing in a fast forward mode Things are moving rather rapidly. We're actually going to cover about four to five years in that time span. And so the scripture transitions the spotlight off of Saul. And we see or hear nothing from Saul for several chapters. But it goes now to that great outspoken leader of the church, Simon Peter. And in Acts chapter 9, at verse 32, we read that Simon Peter begins to travel after the conversion and inclusion of Saul of Tarsus. He begins to travel through all those areas that were, doc- uh, that were documented for us in the 31st verse. They were the areas of Caesarea. They were the areas of Galilee and Samaria, where all those churches were mentioned in the 31st verse. So Simon Peter's traveling through all these areas, and he's just doing ministry, and he's encouraging the church, and he's preaching the gospel. I mean, they just saw their greatest enemy converted and included within their fellowship so if you can imagine Simon Peter's passion at that very moment but as the spotlight transitions to Simon Peter we see that Simon Peter's his travels were not void of divine experience but rather he goes to Joppa and there at Joppa he would meet this lady named Tabitha whose name was also translated in some languages, Dorcas. And he would, he's heard of this lady, Tabitha, or Dorcas, and he's heard about the great deeds she does. But as he enters Joppa, the city of Joppa, he finds there that this lady had died in a rather unexpected and untimely death. And Simon Peter enters her house, enters the room there where she stayed. And everybody within the church is mourning and they're weeping and they're filled with grief. And they're showing Simon Peter and each other all these coats and all these blankets that Tabitha had made for those who were in need. And they're talking about how much of a wonderful individual she was and how powerful her kingdom work was. And Simon Peter is moved by faith. And the scripture says he puts everyone out of the room and he speaks to this deceased sister of his in Christ. And he says, Tabitha, I say to you, arise. And she who was dead arose and she gets up. And the scripture says that all the church begins to celebrate. And then the story of Simon Peter continues to transition. He now goes to spend the night with a man who is also named Simon. And he made his living as a tanner. He tanned hides. He lived by the seashore. And so Simon Peter is there with Simon the tanner. And they're kind of hanging out for a few days and enjoying some good Christian fellowship. And the scripture tells us later on in the, night, in the 10th chapter that Simon Peter would go up to Simon the tanner's rooftop. Now you say, Pastor, isn't this kind of weird for a man to be hanging out on a, on, on, a, on a stranger's roof with the 
architectural understanding of the first century, we know that the rooftop would have been like the front porch in our society. There would have probably been a staircase from the uh, outside perimeter of the house that would have led up to the roof, and it would have been very common for people to sit on the rooftop and just enjoy the scenery. So imagine this. Simon Peter is staying at a house of a man who makes his living tanning hides, and he's there along the seashore. And Simon Peter is just up on the rooftop. He's by himself. He's having a good time enjoying the presence of God. He's probably in a place of prayer and, and, and meditation. And he's looking out upon the horizon of the sea. And, and all of a sudden, God takes him into a place spiritually to show him a lesson that would enable him to interpret the recent occurrences of the church and the future occurrences of the church. Simon Peter, being, uh, having known nothing other than Judaism religiously, sees this vision of a great white sheet that is let down from heaven, held up by its four corners. And the scripture tells us that he sees all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the, airs and all the, uh, of the air and all the fish of the sea within this great sheet or this great blanket. And he looks at this rather strangely, and the voice of God speaks to Simon Peter. And he says, Simon Peter, arise, kill, and eat. As a hunter, that's one of my favorite verses. Arise, kill it, and eat it. If you don't think God is approval of... Uh, <laughs> we won't go there this morning. But anyway, Simon Peter says, Lord, I cannot do that because some of these creatures are unclean according to kosher Jewish law. Some of them are unclean. And God makes this bold statement to Peter. He says, what I have cleansed, do not call unclean. I believe this statement would have been so revolutionary to Simon Peter and everyone who were a part of the church at that time when it is still viewed as just another sect of Judaism. This would have been such a revolutionary statement that Simon Peter probably did not have the courage to breathe a word of it to anyone else. But he comes down off the rooftop and some other events continue to transpire. There comes an individual who knocks on the door of Simon the Tanner and he says, is Simon Peter here in this house? And he says, yes, he is. What do you need from him? He said, well, I'm a servant of a centurion whose name is Cornelius. And Cornelius is a man who prays and seeks God, but yet keep in mind, Cornelius was a Roman centurion, which meant he was a Gentile, and he was excluded from the covenant and the commonwealth of Israel. And at this point in time, the church is only perceived as a sect or a movement of Judaism. There had not been the single issue of a Gentile conversion. But this man who's a servant of Cornelius the centurion, he says, my, my master Cornelius, he's praying and he's seeking God. And God told him to send me here and to ask for Simon Peter and to bring Simon Peter to his house. And all of this transpires on the heels of Simon Peter's vision where God says, if I've cleansed it, don't call it unclean. Simon Peter says, I'll go with you. And so he travels with this man all the way back to the home of Cornelius the centurion. And to make a very long, dramatic, drawn-out story very much shorter and take away some dynamics of it, Simon Peter enters the house of, uh, of Cornelius the centurion, and there in Cornelius' home he is radically converted. And if we're not careful as we read through the narrative of Acts, we can totally miss the depth and the dynamics of the conversion of Cornelius the centurion. But I want to present to you while Cornelius the centurion did not author the books of the New Testament as Saul of Tarsus would later do, the conversion of Cornelius the centurion was probably almost as important to the narrative of Acts. Even though we see little to nothing of him 
after his conversion. But it was almost as important to the narrative of Acts as Saul's conversion was. For this was the first instance where God says, my grace is not only stretched out to the Jewish nation, my grace is not only stretched out to the Israelites, and I'm not just merely trying to mend what is broken within, my, within the nation of my covenant people, but I'm literally fulfilling the promise that whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But pastor, how do we consolidate all of these events and how do we even make them come together to make any sense? I want to say to you this morning that Saul of Tarsus was a great fear of the church. Yet God met with him and and, and performed a miracle in his life when no one else was around from the church. This existential threat was essentially dissolved when Saul is converted gloriously and miraculously. And then wait a minute. Simon Peter goes to Joppa and there he encounters this wonderful sister in Christ, Tabitha or Dorcas. And she'd just been taken by death. Death is one of the greatest enemies that we're the greatest enemy that we face. And nobody is exactly uh, warm and fuzzy when it comes to the conversation of death. But I want you to put your plate yourself in the shoes of the early church at this point in time. Because death would have been perceived as a greater enemy to them here than it ever would have been. Because just a few short months prior, their beloved leader Stephen was taken from them by death. But God's going to say through Simon Peter, through your work, through your travel to Joppa, I want the church to experience that not only am I greater than Saul of Tarsus, but I'm greater than your fear of death because I'm greater than death itself. And then Simon Peter would now go to the Gentile, Cornelius the centurion, and God would allow him to lead him into the fold of this new covenant, even though he had no connection to the commonwealth of Israel. And wasn't it the narrative of the entirety of the Old Testament where the Gentile nations were the enemies of God's people repetitively? But God's going to say, listen, I am greater than your fear of the Gentiles. I am great enough that not only can I convert Saul of Tarsus, who is part of the commonwealth of Israel, but also I can convert the centurion Cornelius, who is without the commonwealth of Israel. I believe that God is declaring to the church in Acts chapter 9, verse 27, all the way through chapter 11, verse 30, He is declaring to the church that He is greater than the sum of all of their fears, all of their anxiety, and everything that feeds depression in their mind. And this is what would have been perceived by the church of these things. And this morning, I know that perhaps we don't have a Saul of Tarsus to deal with. And this morning, perhaps we don't, uh, we, we don't necessarily have a Tabitha or Dorcas situation immediately presenting itself with us where we're robbed of those we love from death. And maybe we don't really understand the differentiator between Jew and Gentile and the miraculous conversion of Cornelius the centurion, but yet there are so many things that feed fear and anxiety and depression in our minds this morning. If you're here this morning... And you say, Pastor, I'm, I, I'm struggling with that. I'm battling with that, whether, whether it's a great dynamic battle or whether it's a very light battle or somewhere in between. My prayer for you this morning is that you experience what God led the church to experience some 2,000 years ago. And if you say, Pastor, I don't struggle with the thoughts of fear, anxiety, or depression ever, then I pray God delivers you from being a liar. That's a joke. 
God is greater than the sum of all of our fears, our anxiety, and depression. And he would prove himself to the church in such a manner. He would prove to the church that he is greater than everything that could disintegrate them. That could be a threat to their very existence. And that he would now distinguish this element of fear from their minds. Now I want you to understand something about fear, anxiety, and depression. These three things that, that, that cause so much torment in our minds, and specifically right now in relation to the society and the world that we live in, these things are all historic in nature. Have you ever stopped to think about this? That fear, anxiety, and depression try to convince us of negativity that lays before us in our future, but yet all the while they know nothing about our future. All they know is our past. And so fear, anxiety, and depression begin to occur when we begin to think about a terrible situation that we've been through in the past, something difficult that we had to walk through, and we begin to fear, am I going to have to go through that again? And that's when those voices are fueled. And that's when they begin to pick up the megaphone and they begin to tell us about all the negativity that's going to lie in our future because somehow we're reminded of those traumatic events that we've experienced in our past. But I want to remind us this morning that the voices of fear and anxiety and depression are not prophetic voices. They're voices that speak from past experience. They know nothing about what lies in your tomorrow. So if you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, my mind is so filled with, with fear of what may happen in our nation or perhaps fear of what may happen in our world or fear of what may happen to the church or fear of what may happen in your life as an individual. But I want to say to you this morning that none of those things know what tomorrow holds for you. They only speak out of the abundance of your past negative experience. And they take no consideration for the manners in which God had brought us through those negative past experiences. But when we look into the scripture, we see that the nature of God is total opposite of the nature of the voice of fear, anxiety, and depression. Because in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11 and multiple other times throughout the pages of scripture, God would declare a similar message that I know the plans I have for you. Plans to bring you hope, plans to prosper, that's not necessarily monetarily, plans to give you an expected end. The polar opposite of the voices that we tend to listen to, that we tend to believe, and that we tend to heed to. God would declare to the church in the book of Acts that He is able to dissolve everything that not only is a fear, is an anxiety, or is a, a, a funnel of depression, but even the very things that feed those thoughts. God says, I am able to dissolve them. But as we look into this, this morning we see something even greater that's occurring. And it's my prayer that it occurs in our lives that we stop and that we grasp this. That not only is God greater, because we could probably pause right there. And we could probably say, Pastor, it doesn't matter how bothered I am by my situation. It doesn't matter how bothered I am by the events that have transpired in our nation. It doesn't matter how bothered I am about everything that's happened with this pandemic over the last several months. And all the negativity that 2020 
money has handed us. Maybe, maybe we could all say we know and understand God is greater, but there's an even deeper principle that we must not leave without first examining this morning. And it's the principle that not only says God is greater than all of that negativity, but it's the principle that says God can take your greatest threat transform it and hand it back to you as your greatest asset think about that god can take your greatest threat transform it and hand it back to you as your greatest asset we saw it in the conversion of saul the greatest existential threat the church knew in that day was Saul of Tarsus. And God said, just let him get away from you for a minute. Let him travel halfway to the road of Damascus and let me meet him there. And then I'll bring him to Damascus as an entirely transformed individual. And then the narrative continues. Dorcas, Tabitha, the great, uh, the, the great saint lady of the church there at Joppa has been taken by death, and they say, we've already lost Stephen, and now we're going to lose another beloved leader in the church, another beloved servant of the church. But God's going to say, I'm going to prove to you, this was the first instance of a resurrection in the book of Acts. God's going to say, I'm going to prove to you that I'm greater than death. And not only that I'm greater than death, but I can take death, that existential threat, and I can transform it and hand it back to you as your asset. Imagine the testimony that the church had when everyone in the community of Joppa knew that Tabitha, had, that Dorcas had died, but now God had resurrected her back to life. God said, but I want you to understand this is on a grand scale. Not merely on a scale of specific personal experience, but rather on the scale of a global encounter of who he is. For God was saying, I don't, through, through the story of Cornelius the centurion and through the vision that Simon Peter would have had on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner in Joppa, God was saying, what I did specifically for Saul of Tarsus, what I did specifically for Dorcas or Tabitha in Joppa, I'm going to do for the entire world. I'm going to lead into it through the conversion of Cornelius centurion the gentile nations had been the greatest enemy of the people of israel other than the fact that they were many times their own enemy themselves but imagine this had god selected another man besides cornelius to be the first gentile converted in the story of acts had he chosen, perhaps, and some would actually probably argue that the Ethiopian eunuch that Philip encountered and converted and baptized there in his chariot, that perhaps he was uh, uh, the first Gentile convert. But actually, I, I think there's probably a deeper reason why that eunuch was in Jerusalem. And I think he was already connected with Judaism because he was there studying the Scripture. But had God chosen anyone else of any other nationality besides Cornelius, the Roman centurion, this would have held less significance. But who was the greatest enemy of the people of Israel? The greatest perceived enemy of the people of Israel during the first century was the Roman government. And God's going to say here, I'm not only going to extend the message of hope, the message of salvation to the Gentiles and not just keep it included within Israel. 
But I'm going to begin by showing you that I can even save the Romans. Even those who oppress you as a nation. God says they're not out of the reach of my grace. Simon Peter leaves this experience with Cornelius the centurion in the 11th chapter. And he's thinking, man, this is unlike anything I have ever seen or heard. Because here's how the story went down. When Simon Peter arrived at Cornelius' house, Cornelius had a bunch of his buddies and his friends who were also Gentiles and probably Romans. And they heard the same message of hope of the gospel from Simon Peter that, 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 that the centurion Cornelius himself heard. And like him, they are converted. And they experience the Holy Spirit. And the scripture says they begin to speak the word of God with boldness. And they begin to rejoice. And here's Simon Peter, this good little Jewish boy. And now he's stuck here with this bunch of Roman Gentiles. And he's watching God transform them just as he's seen God transform Jews who had embraced the message of the Messiah. It was identical. It was not fabricated. It was genuine. It was authentic. He said, look at what God is doing. We're going to encounter over the next few weeks, especially over the next three to four weeks, how this was now the greatest dilemma of the church. Whether or not they would openly receive the inclusion of the Gentiles into this new covenant. But at this point in time, Simon Peter and perhaps a few others who would have traveled with him witnessed what happened in the house of Cornelius the centurion and they rejoiced because they said salvation come to the Gentiles. God has extended this. He is able, not only is he greater, but he's able to take our greatest threat and transform it and hand it back to us in the form of our greatest asset. All these puzzle pieces would fit together. Saul of Tarsus, and I said I wasn't going to get into this much today, but Saul of Tarsus would now be known as Paul. And that was not necessarily a spiritual transformational name change as we many times interpret it. But essentially, Saul is a Hebrew name, right? That was the name of the first king that Israel chose back in the book of 1 Samuel. And so Saul was, a, was an Israeli name. It was a Hebrew name. But Paul is essentially the Gentile translation of Saul. God would say, I'm going to change your name to Paul because you're going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And right on the heels of Saul's conversion, on the heels of that transformation, we see that God begins to pour out His grace upon the Gentiles. And God is saying to the church, everything that you feared, I'm transforming. And I'm working it together for the good of my kingdom. What if this morning everything that has happened negatively, not only to us as a society, Perhaps to you as an individual in your life. What if all of those things are not the prediction of our demise, but rather the stage that God is setting to allow the gospel to be proclaimed, to allow His kingdom to be built, to allow just as Jesus prayed for the kingdom of God to come on this earth as it is in heaven. It is only God who can take our greatest threat transform it to our greatest asset. 
And I want to say to us this morning in closing that if we fail to realize God's ability and desire to do so, then we'll miss an opportunity to see Him work as only He can. I'm reminded of a story that Paul, who was once known as Saul, would later in give a description of in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 12. And there Saul or Paul would give a description about a personal struggle that he had. And he would describe this not in detail, but rather as a thorn that was in his carnality, in his flesh. And he say that he pray, he would say that he prayed to the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. That God would somehow remove this thorn from his flesh, from his side. Proverbially speaking, obviously. And God's reply, much to Paul's surprise, was not to remove the thorn, but rather to remind Paul of the magnitude of his grace. For his reply was not to remove the thorn, but rather his reply was, My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And so I'll sum up this lesson with this statement. That Perhaps you're here this morning individually, or perhaps we look at this on a broad perspective. From within our church, within our culture, our nation, it could apply to every single scenario. But if we fail to recognize the magnitude of God's grace, then we'll just sit in a situation where we're praying for God to do something, and we'll just sit and wait and wait and wait, and we miss what He's doing here. Because we're waiting for what we think should happen down the road. You see, God did not say to the church, hide from Saul, but rather he said, let me transform Saul. And he did not say to the church, fear death because you just lost your beloved leader Stephen. But he said, let me show you what I can do. And then he did not say, look out for the Gentiles because they're going to try to destroy you. But he said, rather, let me show you my grace. Extended to them and to Saul, to Paul. He would say, as Paul would document to the second letter in his second letter to the Corinthians, he would say, Don't get worked up over the struggle that you're asking me to remove. But realize that my grace is sufficient. No matter how minor your situation this morning or how major, no matter if you feel a little control over it or no control at all, could we stop and recognize this morning? That his grace is so much greater that not only is he able to dissolve threats to his people, but he's able to take our greatest threats, transform them, and use them as our greatest assets, as a platform upon which we can declare the hope that's found only in Jesus. If we could just put aside the vast political division and realize that before we're Americans, before we're Republicans or Democrats, before we're Libertarians, before we belong to any political party, Paul said our citizenship is 
in heaven. And yes, this is a mess that we find ourselves in, but it is the greatest hour of opportunity for the church of Jesus Christ to declare that he is the way, the truth, and the life, that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he never changes, and he is greater than anything we face in this life. Would you stand with me as we pray together? Father, we're thankful.